Joe, do you want to talk? Why? What am I saying? Why, who am I talking to? I, I do want to mention two things. Okay. Are you recording right now? Yeah, I'm recording. Oh, that's a good course, thing. Of course it's recording. <laughs> One, um, uh, I don't know. Should I even do a health update? No. Okay. I, I do have an inhaler now. Good. It's temporary. I think people want to know this, Joe. We, okay. men- we mentioned last week we would update people. And this, Two, is a medically, this is a medically appropriate inhaler. It's not like some bong you found on a street corner. <laughs> it's, it's, it's medically ordered. Okay. It's, uh, yeah, so this is, this is under, under supervision of medical professionals. Excellent. Uh, that's a little foreshadowing. That's okay. part of the reason I bring this up. Doesn't it foreshadow something we talk about later with our guest? I don't know. Oh, boy. You've already forgotten. Um, Since I don't know what on earth you're talking about, I think you should just spit it out. <laughs> the, the medical stuff. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see. If oh, the... medical malpractice. Yeah, yeah, Got yeah, it. Okay. okay, okay. Finally. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Dawned on me finally. Uh, and um, boy, this wasp is around here too. Hopefully yeah. that part of the show will stay in. Hopefully. Um, secondly, I, I thought we should say, <laughs> if we're just watching this wasp fly around the I studio. I am. You, yeah. you don't care about it. You <laughs> declared it. You're, it's irrelevant to you. So I don't want you talking about it. <laughs> You're, uh, you're not allowed to mention it. The best thing about pre-roll is that, like, the, that your irritation with me, which is built up over the course of the hour, <laughs> is like busting is, out, is unveiled all at once. So, so the podcast starts out florid. with this, it starts out with this great impatience, right? Yep. Um, but, which is only going to be uh, only going to be accelerated when I mention that that Joe, your your current living arrangements. What about them? Where, where are you living right now? I'm living at World Headquarters. <laughs> I'm living at Argument World Headquarters. I have to say, I think it was the very day. After I mentioned to you that we that we will again be having people yes. living in our house, and this, I observed uh, that I had never stayed in the place above the garage, right. and the world hearing me, the cosmos hearing me. Well, well, but before you say, and I said, as you know, I said, eventually everyone lives here. Yes, in in our space, and I scoffed. You scoffed, <laughs> and the gods being who they are, uh, the cosmos <laughs> with its stormy fist reached down and tore the power lines off the side of my house. Uh, and uh, you can tell I'd read Virgil's Aeneid recently because this is all, to me, it's all very much about the gods participating in human life. Um, and, and, and deprive me of electric power uh, here in the South where your house becomes an easy-bake oven in about five minutes if you don't have air conditioning and drove me from the premises. Into the arms of your garage apartment suite thing you hmm. do. So here I am. Everybody lives here eventually. Eventually. And listeners, if you have not yet <laughs> lived here, believe me, it's coming. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we should... Do, do we say the name of our guest? Leah Lippman. Okay. UC Irvine professor. Awesome. Okay, let's get on with the show. This wasp is freaking me out. We need to do something about that. It's <laughs> By which I mean you need to do something about that because it's your house. <laughs> It'll be fine. It, it will not be fine. I'm not recording with that wasp flying around. Seriously. I, I don't know what you want me to do. Pick something up that you own and kill it. <laughs> I, uh, You're laughing. I'm not, we're not recording until I, you take care of it. I'm not going to kill a wasp. Why not? It's a wasp. He's not hurting anybody. Uh, he's hurting me. He's hurting my psychological equanimity. He's, he, he's probably equally bothered by you. He's <laughs> probably right about that. <laughs> I think it'll be fine. I think it'll be fine. And if someone gets stung, it'll just add, it'll be a little flavor in the nice. show. Yeah, a little pizzazz. Yeah. Little pizzazz. Put some sizzle on that steak. <laughs> the wasp is still around, so there may be further wasp-related news as yeah. the podcast progresses. He's, he's moving very menacingly. <laughs> um, it's, I think the wasp knows that he's got a real eggshell 
person over here in the form of me because he's flying above me. It's just horrible. I was on the craziest flight recently where we actually couldn't take off for almost an hour because a swarm of bees had infested the luggage compartment. And so the airline employees couldn't load the luggage because they didn't want to get attacked by the swarm of bees. Eventually, the bees moved, but then they couldn't actually take the jet bridge away from the plane because apparently the queen bee and the hive was really near the jet bridge. So we just waited on the tarmac until they got the beekeeper to the airport in his full-on beekeeper suit to get all the bees away. Wow. It was crazy. This is, I think, a testament both to um, a certain level of Christian Turner-like humanity— Um, which I do not endorse for others necessarily. Um, but it's also a sign of how much bee colony collapse there has been. Like 20 years ago, everyone would have been like, kill the damn bees, right? Mm-hmm. We wouldn't care. But bees are like in trouble. Yeah. So now they're taking care. I, but I'm also a sucker for any like animal related airplane, airplane delay story. Really? Right. I mean, if, you know, whether it's snakes on a plane or it's, in this case, bees on a plane. No, Snakes on a Plane was fictional, I believe. That, Are the, you sure? The, I thought that was I a, think the movie was not a documentary. Because I thought it was about that time Samuel L. Jackson got, <laughs> was, <laughs> had, had airplane trouble. All right. I don't know. We have Leah Lippman, one of America's greatest just people, just flat out. Oh, just going to put it yeah. that. Oh, just going to wow. put it out there. And so we're wasting her time. I don't disagree. Her valuable time. The nation's no, valuable I, I time. Do, I disagree with that. I think Lee and I both disagree with you about that in terms of waste. <laughs> this is <laughs> well. The, you know, I'm feeling imperiled by the wasp, so I need to move this along. That's let's. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll end my subterfuge. Who was one of our very early iTunes commentators who said, you know, get on with it. You know, yeah, less other, less banter, less banter. And then we had other people who said more banter. Right. It created a kind of civil war in the oral argument community, I would say. Uh, it's a tough balance. It, it is a tough is. balance. And, and, and we manage somehow to strike it wrong no matter what we do. But, I, you know, let's, I, I feel, and we said this before, I feel like you, you, for good ideas, it's a little bit like a spiral galaxy. Like you want to get to the center eventually. Yeah. That's the, well, it's a supermassive black hole. But, you know, the, the analogy kind of falls down <laughs> at that point. But, but... <laughs> But maybe the greatest, the great, the, the gravity of the ideas is greatest. I'll say that, you know, towards the center. But you got to kind of start at the at the outer arms and yeah. kind of spiral in, and, and you kind of so work your way in. You yeah. work your way in. Yeah. So I feel like this helps. I feel like this yeah. is. I mean, you know. I, I I hope a black hole isn't an extended analogy to to, to the article um, I wrote. But hey, you know, I guess we'll find out at the end when we get to the center. That's right. It is about absences. It right. is about the absence <laughs> of a thing. True. Um. So. No, maybe it'll be more of a kind of a Tootsie Roll Pop kind of thing at the center. Oh, uh, okay. The center, it's something yeah. delicious, right? Right. Rather than, yeah. So much so that you, you may be tempted to bite into it, but, <laughs> but maybe, maybe, let it, maybe let it linger a little bit. Yeah, That's all that, I think that was the conceit of that advertisement back in the day. We're, we're dating ourselves for yeah, sure. Yeah, well, speaking of conceit, maybe we should drop this one and we should get, get into it. And we can t- see the great thing about having Leah on uh, in addition to the fact that um, our listeners will enjoy, this is sort of a demi crossover, semi crossover with yeah. First Mondays um, again. But um, but it's because we can talk to her about habeas corpus. We could talk to her about uh, Supreme Court term just concluded or the one coming up. Uh, we could talk about uh, we could talk her about wonderful the one that's paper two years from now. Sure, why not? We could speculate about anything. Um, yeah. Because she's game for that kind of thing. Yeah, right? we can right, also speculate. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's oh, speculation yeah. when it's the term just concluded. 
I'm like that guy in Anchorman who <laughs> always says, I love lamp, only I love law. So if it relates to law, let's do it. All right. Or wasps or anything else. But No, not so, wasps. But but we do have a paper that we want to talk about. Indeed. Okay, so Joe, help 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 us out here. Uh, get, us on, get us on track. I'm blanking on the title, I'm embarrassed to say, against anti-novelty something? Debunking anti-novelty. Debunking anti-novelty. So here's, here's what I... One thing that I thought was so helpful, such a great service of this paper, was it pulled together, and I had not realized just how often this had been happening, or the varied circumstances in which it had been happening, the it being an argument of the basic form, um, this act of Congress has a problem, and you can tell because there haven't been acts of Congress like this before. Like, at the most general level, that's what I perceive the the basic form of argument to be. Now, you carefully say, hey, because there are these different varieties, it's happening in different areas. Um, It's good to and important to focus on sort of separation of powers and federalism subset of those arguments. But that argument is more widespread than that, it seems, isn't it? Yes, definitely. Um, In cases addressing acts of Congress. It's been invoked in equal protection challenges, like in United States versus Windsor, which addressed the constitutionality of the Federal Defense of Marriage Act. Um, There, the court suggested that the statute was new and different in kind from prior congressional statutes. That claim was perhaps a little dubious, um, given that the court's reasons for why the statute was new that the statute addressed family law um, aren't necessarily that persuasive. But the idea that a statute is suspect constitutionally because it is different or new uh, relative to previous statutes has been invoked in um, other areas in addition to the ones I wrote about in this article, which were a separation of powers and federalism. And, and the predecessor to Windsor it wasn't in the context of questioning whether what Congress had done was unprecedented. My recollection of Romer against Evans, uh, also by Kennedy, is that it's it was very much a problem with that state uh, ballot initiative that, in his view, the majority's view, it was sort of nothing like, no disability like this had been imposed in law before. Um, yes. On on a disfavored group, therefore, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you can broaden it to the work product this, of this other mechanisms. Said, this is the one that, uh, at the state level, said locals can't enact anti discrimination or the state. For, it was a state it, constitutional it, amendment. Right, so even right. the state legislature any would not unit be able state to, government, correct. right? Right. But it was kind of targeted, kind of like the bathroom bill stuff these days. You know, a lot of this political dynamic is going on. It's like trying to solve at the state level right. a problem that you perceive is happening in cities. They're getting too liberal with. So why focus there? on? federalism and and separation of powers help help the listeners uh, understand why you think that's an especially important subset of this since the argument um x is weak or bad or unconstitutional because something like x hasn't happened before that most general form why is it especially uh, important to focus on it in separation of powers and federalism context sure um so the reasons i kind of chose to bracket and due process areas in this article were several. One is that particularly when this idea that a statute or provision is new and therefore suspect is invoked in areas involving constitutional rights like equal protection and due process, it sweeps in the 
prior practice of all of the states and presumably localities and municipalities that really broadens the set of relevant government action and therefore some of the critiques I make of the anti-novelty principle as it is applied to congressional statutes don't apply. Um, For example, in the article, I talk about how difficult it is for Congress to pass federal laws, um, and that critique of the anti-novelty principle does not apply where you are talking about state legislatures and state municipalities and state localities, which can generate a lot more law a lot more easily. Um, Second um, is because some of the critiques I make of the anti-novelty principle deal with the constitutional text and structure um, that's more specific to federalism and the separation of powers than it is in the rights context. And more generally, I think that some of my skepticism about the federalism separation of powers uh, cases where the anti-novelty principle is invoked is that the premise of the anti-novelty principle, at least one part of it, is the recognition that so much has changed with respect to our federalism and separation of powers. And that's not necessarily true in the same way with respect to constitutional rights, like equal protection and due process, where if anti-novelty is invoked in those constitutional rights areas, it may be because we are skeptical of classifications along certain lines or laws that infringe on certain rights. And that could be a sort of independent justification for the anti-novelty principle in the context of constitutional rights that wouldn't apply in the context of federalism and separation of powers, where things have changed in a way that constitutional doctrine and constitutional law have accepted as constitutional and legitimate. It's kind of strange though, right? I mean, in the, in the rights area, and I'm thinking of kind of constitutional equal protection, like one of the arguments for additional uh, judicial scrutiny of congressional statutes is, is, is exactly that this is that, that kind of antagonism and antipathy toward this particular group is not at all novel, right? (laughs) That, that they've been a consistent target of, of local laws, state laws. In fact, that's the kind of evidence that you might look at when you're deciding whether to make a new category of people a suspect class, right? Yes, definitely. And I think that that was part of why I didn't necessarily think that the court was right to invoke anti-novelty in Windsor or Romer, because the idea that laws, you know, whether at the federal level or, you know, more likely at the state and local municipal municipal level, have not targeted individuals for disparate treatment on account of their sexual orientation or gender or gender identity is just wrong. And it's partially (laughs) because of that tradition that we are skeptical of those classifications. So you know, I bracketed the the area of constitutional rights in this article just because I think that there are a host of other reasons that we might be skeptical of anti-novelty in that area, but also a host of reasons why we might want some anti-novelty presumption in that area. You know, if we take as a given the idea that there is a history and tradition of discriminating against certain groups or infringing on certain rights, that skepticism 
maybe would justify an anti-novelty principle that says not so much if it's a discrimination that's different in kind, but maybe a discrimination that's different in degree um, against certain groups or that infringes certain rights, then perhaps we should be constitutionally suspect of that. But I think that that justification isn't so much about the law's novelty as it is that the law happens to track a certain classification or infringe a certain right that we know to be a generally invalid or suspect classification. Yeah, it's just interesting that it's like, it's, it's, not, it's not that novelty is irrelevant to those cases, it's, but it works in the opposite way that it's described here, right? That it's well, precisely... Well, does it? I mean, the whole thing seemed, to me, one of the main difficulties here, um, and, and uh, that I think you've, you've overcome in some ways, um, or, 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 you know, cabined in some ways successfully. But but to me, the one of the principal difficulties is the, the level of generality problem seems very slippery. The framing problem. Uh, correct. The way it's characterized. Problem. So you could characterize Romer against Evans, that, that uh, disability imposed on, on those seeking uh, equal rights for lesbian gay people. You can characterize that uh, disability imposed on them as sort of unprecedented, or you could characterize it in a different way or frame it with a different focus and say, Ah, see, it's of a piece with these things that demonstrate that there's been a, a long-standing antipathy that shows that yeah, it's like greater scrutiny is is really appropriate in this equal yeah. protection context. Like, so, like, like either never before have we seen a, uh, a, a, a state-level group of people like take away from other governmental units the ability to be um, inclusive. I mean, you could try to argue that, right? But you could also say this is we've seen this movie before, right? right. Yes. And and that would include expanding the frame to look at um, you know disabilities imposed on disfavored groups, other groups broadly yeah. understood, yeah. right? As opposed to simply lesbian and gay people. So so it just seems like the framing step where where and and teasing that apart from everything else that's going on in the argument. Would, right? would it help, though, to, yes, to, to do that, to kind of just lay out on the table four what or five examples? Is. Like, I, I just think, like, the example of Prince, the example of New York, the example yeah. of NFIB, cool. the example of yeah. uh, the, you know, uh, is it? Free Enterprise Fund. I always get the acronym. Yeah, because yeah, people F-C-O-B. say peekaboo, but it's not actually yeah, yeah, yeah. spelled peekaboo. P-C-O-B, is that what it is? P-C-A-O-B, I think. P-C-A-O, yeah, so... Yeah. Um, I, should we just, Leah, do you want to go through these or Joe or some sure. combination? Yeah, One or two. We surely don't need four or five. We need, we? We need all of them. <laughs> we need all of them properly to motivate the discussion, Joe. This is Christian a, is a completist. This show is about nothing if not exactitude and, ah. uh, yeah, and completeness. All right. Yeah. So um, one of the critiques I make of the anti-novelty principle as it's invoked in, you know, separation of powers and federalism cases is the idea that it rests on this threshold question of accurately describing the past practices or past tradition, and that that act, trying to define the prior tradition or past practices, can be done at several different levels of generality in order to generate an outcome, i.e. to say the statute is new and therefore constitutionally suspect, or to say, no, the statute is similar to previous ones and therefore constitutionally legitimate or likely to be. So some of the examples I use are Free Enterprise Fund and National Federation of Independent Businesses. In Free Enterprise Fund, the statute said that the officials of the PCAOB were removable only for cause 
by the officials of the SEC, who are themselves only removable for cause by the president. So therefore, there were two layers of for cause removal. And the majority said, well, that's new. We haven't before confronted a statute in which there are two layers of for cause removal. But the dissent said that's not the right way to define the prior tradition and prior practices. What we have is a well-worn tradition of Congress insulating agencies from presidential removal and presidential control. And defined at that level of generality, of course, the PCAOB is very much of a piece with our constitutional tradition. If you look at the prior cases, you might say what, what the way to categorize them is like we've had uh, what was it? Myers, n- no protection from removal. Right. Um, we've had Humphrey's executor, one, you know, some protection rather than none. Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, PCAOB is just. Versus r- right. And so the, this most recent one, just more of the same, right? It's a variation right. on a theme. You say potato, I say potato. It's protection from removal. What's the big deal, right? Um, so, and, and it seems very similar to just when you teach first year law students about distinguishing cases, you know, in the common law method, like, you know, all two cases are different. Like every single case is different from every other case. And and so never before on a Tuesday has someone done the following. I mean, it's a bit silly. What essentially you're learning is how to exploit differences for why they should matter, like connecting the distinction to the rationale for the rule that you're trying to apply. No, it seems to me a non goofy way to argue from the double removal premise is to say, um, you know, double removal, unlike single, a double protection, unlike single protection, has some functional perils that a single layer of protection does not have, given our understanding of the robustness with which the president must be in control of executive actors, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? There, you're, you're taking the difference and you're talking about why it is meaningful and important based on the things you care about. But but your argument is, and it seems to me that what the court actually said was, it w- was, ha- you know, having framed it and put the framing question to the side, right? Um, mm-hmm. But having framed it this way, the novelty in and of itself, right? Not some functional issue that it has, but merely the novelty alone is a reason to think it's defective. And why would that, why would someone think that was true? What inferential chain are they trading on implicitly? That, that you're trying to critique? So I think that there are actually two inferential chains um, that have been at play in these anti-novelty cases. The first inferential chain and the one that the court first invoked when it started trading in this idea that a statute's novelty is a sign that it's unconstitutional is that, well, if Congress had the constitutional power to enact this law, it would have already done so. So it's trading in this idea that, well, if Congress hasn't before enacted this statute over the last 200 years, it's probably because Congress thought it didn't have the power to enact this statute. And that is a reason to think that Congress doesn't actually have the power to enact the statute. So that's one um, inferential uh, chain that the court's anti-novelty cases. That sounds like the old economist joke about not picking up the $20 bill, right? Right, because <laughs> if it were really there, someone would have picked, someone it, up would have picked it up. Right. And so, so it must be, you know, it's it's not like, it's not solely the fact that Congress has never enacted, because again, Congress has obviously never enacted this particular statute, and except in those rare cases where they kind of revive a statute that had lapsed, I guess that, that can happen. But in almost every case, Congress is enacting a statute which has never been enacted in precisely that form before. 
and, and that alone is not, I, I, you know, to give credit to the anti-novelty position, that alone is, I think they're, they must be trading in, you know, they, there must be some pre-existing doubts about constitutionality, and they're using the the lack of prior enactment of a statute within some zone of epsilon around this one as evidence about what, you know, well, you, you go further into it in the paper. I don't know how much we want to unpack it now, but but there must be. Yeah, yeah go ahead. So I guess I think that that um, the I think idea I think that you're referencing is, I think, more related to the second chain of inferential steps that the court takes in anti-novelty, which is it is assuming a baseline of constitutional correctness, i.e. the court assumes that, well, the correct constitutional rule, i.e. what the Constitution actually requires, is the president to control executive officers, or what the Constitution actually requires is a federal government of very few and enumerated powers. And then from that baseline, it says, look, our constitutional traditions have evolved um, to contradict or violate those principles. Congress has a slew of powers that exceed, you know, the few and enumerated powers that um, we think the Constitution actually gives to Congress, or Congress has been allowed the power to insulate officers from presidential removal, and that too is a constitutional error or mistake. And then the court says, given that our constitutional practice and the doctrine have evolved so far beyond what the constitutional rule or correct baseline is, we need to impose some limit on Congress's ability to continue to violate the correct constitutional rule. And in the context of uh, separation of powers, that means limiting Congress's ability to insulate officers from presidential removal. And I think, you know, that is sort of the intuition that the court is trading in or the, the inferential steps. And the court looks at the world and says, look, we can't actually overrule all of these prior cases that allowed Congress to insulate officers from presidential removal because, you know, there's just like a bunch of agencies and you know, and and they operate that way. So in and that con, the, so the problem there is the backdrop, like the thing doing the work is, and and this is what you call the argument about the second best option at, toward the the back of the paper. And it seems to me that that the thing doing the work there again is that we already know we're in a t- problem territory, which is why we don't need to be careful about explaining. Well, you know, of course, every statute is new in a sense, right? Um, because they they're they're portraying it as if it were obvious to everybody, um, and I guess it is to, obvious to everyone at a Federalist Society meeting um, that it's obvious to everybody that this is defective, right? Mm-hmm. And so, be, and and the novelty participates in that obvious defect. And so, against that backdrop of you know constitution and exile defect, um, the, it's this far and no farther. Uh, or, or as I like to think of it, the Picard meltdown principle. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you guys know that from the, the the movie about him going back in time to pursue yeah. the Borg, right? <laughs> and he's on the he's on the he's in the uh, um, the conference room with Alfred Woodard's character, and he's grabbing the old model of the. Uh, he bashes in a bunch of models of the old Enterprise, and it says of the Borg, you know, this far and no further. He kind of completely loses it, mm-hmm. uh, and that's sort of what they're doing, right? They're they're like they've yeah. got a phaser and they're losing it. They just can't take it anymore, and they're gonna. So they're gonna say stop here, 
Um, but that assumes a lot. Now this of, doesn't imply that we're a Star Trek rather than a Star Wars show. No, not I at all. I just want to be clear. No, because yeah. okay. I, and I love it all. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, but, yeah. um, <laughs> but, but it, it seems to me there that, that in, in such a case, right, if that's your theory of the case or your theory of this argument and why it's a valid argument, you, you sort of are insisting that people have already bought into an awful lot of the spade work of, you know, we're in a situation where we know we have already gone way off the rails. Mm-hmm. And we're trying yeah. to simply stop from going even further off the rails. And a lot of people don't believe that. So it's, it's, a, it's an odd, it's a bit of a tendentious form of argumentation, isn't it? Uh, so I, I completely agree with what you're saying. And part of my concern with novelty as a second best limiting solution is that I think it both assumes an answer to the underlying constitutionality of these statutes and also assumes an answer to a methodology of how these statutes should be um, determined, constitutional or not, that most people may not share. And it excuses the court from having to engage in a debate about the underlying arguments about the relevant or correct constitutional principle, i.e. whether the Constitution as correctly interpreted, however you want to do that, actually requires the president to have an unfettered ability to control executive officers. And it also excuses the court from having to explain why we should go back to whatever it thinks to be the correct constitutional rule when doctrine and practice have evolved so far beyond that. You know, there may be a reason things have changed. And I think it would behoove someone invoking this anti-novelty principle to explain why they are adopting this methodology and largely ignoring many of the underlying reasons behind the doctrine and practice that have you know, rejected their preferred constitutional interpretation. Well, well, let me try. Let me try one. Let me try one. And I feel like we're kind of skipping over. Uh, so the paper has a, a wonderful, almost catalog of different kinds of reasons you might have for yeah. adopting an anti-novelty principle. Yeah. And and then you know rebuttals to all of them. And uh, and it, it's it's you know it's complete. <laughs> so it's it's a complete kind of tour through that. Uh, so I should I think, apologize to the Duke editors for <laughs> making it so complete. Well, no, but it's, 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 you know, if, if you want to, it's also a very nice review of different kinds of interpretive, uh, sta- you know, viewpoints one might have. I don't want to say methodologies because it's, it's a little bit different than that because you kind of catalog a different kind, a bunch of different kinds of interpretive moves that people make and analyze this under all those different kinds of moves. And it's, it's a really good review. Like if you're a student who's interested in statutory or constitutional interpretation, just reading through the paper gives you a bunch of these moves. Oh, yeah. So it's really helpful. But w- one reason you might take this point of view, anti-novelty, is suppose that your model of adjudication is not the court gets a majority on a particular view of the meaning of the Constitution, and that majority writes an opinion explaining the meaning of the Constitution, and that meaning is applied to the facts, and it wins. But suppose the model is, you know, in a world where we don't write completely seriatim opinions, where each judge gives his or her uh, idiosyncratic view, but instead the court proceeds mainly through incompletely theorized arguments in Cass Sunstein's terminology, that what anti-novelty does is is not to kind of give even evidence of the correctness of a particular interpretation of the Constitution, 
but rather is a pragmatic way of signaling among their uh, among themselves that we have drawn a line here that it's not just it's not just here and no further in other words the meaning of the constitution really is here and no further it's it's rather like we know that we don't agree on what the line is or the reasons for those lines mm-hmm. but we can agree to to at least the rhetoric that defines this line and the rhetoric that we've used here signals the outcome of a bunch of future cases in a way that will be useful so that seems to me to be uh, to to be maybe descriptive of of what the supreme court yeah. actually does and to signal like why anti-novelty might be important to the justices as a move, right, rather than as a methodology or, or theory. Yeah, so I think that that might be descriptively accurate. You know, it seems like something the justices, or at least five of them, can all get on board with, not necessarily because it reflects their views, but because I don't know if it would be right to call it like a second best incompletely theorized agreement <laughs> yeah, or right, at yeah. least something that, you know, they can all sign on to in some respects. But I guess like part of my goal in the project is to challenge this, you know, under this, you know, where they have come out on agreement, even if it may be under theorized and not actually represent their views. Because, you know, an under theorized agreement might be something that is incomplete or doesn't necessarily reflect all of their perfect views, but it should still be something that the justices who are signing on to it are comfortable both with its implications and premises and as a guiding principle for future cases. And I think that anti-novelty as any kind of agreement doesn't perform especially well in that respect. Like one of the cases I use as an example is something that's going on in the DC circuit right now on Bonk, this challenge to the structure of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, where the D.C. Circuit panel invoked anti-novelty to say the structure of that agency was unconstitutional. And there the agency is just led by a single director who's um, removable only for cause. And if you think about it, like the novel, the purported novelty of that agency, that it's led by only one person as opposed to many, shouldn't actually trouble someone who wants the president to have more control over executive officers. Because if an agency is led by one person instead of many, that should be easier to control since the president only has to communicate with one person and only has to remove one person in order to change the direction of the agency. But anti-novelty as a guiding principle for you know, separation of powers cases like this can't really distinguish between cases that are troubling for justices who either think that Article 2 requires um, Congress to, requires the president to have effective control, or justices who think that maybe there's too much congressional intrusion or control over agencies, or justices who are just looking for some kind of limiting principle over the separation of powers, because anti-novelty in that case, PHH, doesn't have a really justifiable or defensible outcome. So as an agreement that's supposed to, you know, control or guide the court's future cases, I don't think it should be one that the justices who sign on to it should be comfortable with. Like, I think that if there are, and there are five justices who are looking for some 
sort of way to limit Congress's control over agencies, they should perhaps look for something else. <laughs> it also makes it very troubling to try to take the to take it as a principle and apply it as a principle uh, among lower courts if that isn't what it is, right? If instead of in, I mean, Christian, your description of it as a um, as a move, a, a, a move right. around which people could coordinate uh, in order to less decide this case, which they may be deciding on other grounds, but mm-hmm. to help provide a signal about the the desire that that other political actors stop exploring f- further in this direction, mm-hmm. right? Don't bring us more of these yeah. because we think this they're bad in the way that points forward. That that's interesting and useful. But it's not really something lower courts, I would think, would be able to use in anything like a reliable way. And maybe it's not one of the things in an opinion that is for which lower courts are the primary audience. Okay, well, that I mean, that that's significant, I think, because uh, as as Leah's paper shows, the lower courts are using it. Right. Um, <laughs> so that, that, and, that was going to be the examples I just went to. The right. lower courts, you know, are relying on this to strike down statutes, but oftentimes the court will uphold. So no, I, I'm saying it's not that they don't. It's not that they. I'm, uh, well, okay. So I could be wrong about this, but what I was suggesting is, and partly devil's advocate, but it's not that they um, don't themselves use the same move. But when the Supreme Court deploys the move in a particular case. And the courts try to figure out how to apply, you know, the lower courts try to figure out how to apply that case. It's not necessarily the move that they look to, right, in order to do that. But the, but the move now exists. But, but so the move exists as an independent tool. Right. Yeah. But then the question is like, well, well, what move should lower courts use if this is the move that the court has yeah. offered? And they are the lower courts are applying this principle in the same domains that the Supreme Court is, you know, the scope yeah. of Congress's delegated powers. Um, the extent to which Congress can insulate agencies from presidential removal, all of those areas are areas in which the court has suggested it is appropriate to invoke this anti-novelty principle. And, you know, it's not like they are taking these subsequent cases and saying, no, the statute actually does fall within our constitutional tradition and explaining how they are defining the relevant tradition in a way that lower courts can apply it. So. Yeah, it feels it feels like it's weird, right? It feels like there's a paper yet to be written about about the potential for the court to to use different kinds of rhetoric or moves and yeah. and target them at particular audiences. And but, but, but I, yeah, I guess go my ahead. question yeah. is like who who is that audience here if it's not the lower courts? Is it Congress and telling them you can only pass laws that you've already passed? Well, well, look at Obamacare. <laughs> look at Obamacare one. Okay, so this is a uh, National Federation of Independent Businesses. Uh-huh. Uh, right. This is the one that challenged to the, the uh, mandate. individual mandate, um, and and there, of course, uh, one of one of the, the the moves is to say that never before has Congress passed a law yeah. requiring Americans to buy a product, right? Which is a framing that was very successful. That I mm-hmm. guess Randy Barnett came up with. Was he the first one to come up with that framing? I don't know who the first know. person was, but it's a very successful framing. But of course. Like all such framings, it's one of many potential lenses into the economic sure. reality of it. There, there are many senses in which what Congress did, I think, was totally unremarkable, right, mm-hmm. as, as a solution to a large-scale economic problem. And it's also, you know, insurance itself is sui generis. And so mm-hmm. all kinds of problems. And you, you go over some of them in the, in the paper. But so, so why, why, why that move there? Why the resort to novelty there? I think one explanation is a signal that 
Wickard is not under assault, right? That this is not a frontal assault on the New Deal, right? Yeah. And so it is kind of the, but but also maybe the five justices themselves don't aren't aren't don't have a shared commitment to how far to retrench the New Deal or whether to say, you know, here and no further, or to say, no, we've already gone way too far, and we're going to start pulling up things root and branch to get back to, you know, uh, a time you know pre Wickard, but post some of these early Commerce Clause cases that didn't work out so well, you know, so who knows? Yeah, it's, so it's, so it might yeah. be like an effort just to apply some sort of formal limit, like a pragmatically bounded formalism that the court is using in NFIB. But right. I guess like in NFIB, you know, that was an opinion that generated split opinion. So why the chief who was writing for himself, did he rely on anti-novelty if you know, he he wasn't having to reach some sort of under-theorized agreement with other justices in order to obtain their votes. Like, it was just him. And he still offered that framing as a reason why the mandate or minimum coverage requirement exceeded the scope of Congress's delegated powers. So so who's I, the I, audience, right? That's the question. Right. Who's the audience? Yeah. And, and it's, it's and, kind of, it's hard to believe that it, like you say, it's hard to believe that it's the other four because right. he, he could have written whatever he wanted if, so long as it was narrower and he was right. able to still it's, carry it. It's not lower courts. And it's definitely not lower courts in that case, right? Because it's hard to imagine you get a bunch of other cases like this one, right? It, 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 except, unless you wrote something broadly, which was dedicated right. to the, the principle. So it, that, may be, well, it, may be to your, it may be to Congress, as, as uh, Leah mentioned. I guess it could also be to your future self. could be a way to say, you know, that I, I'm, I'm signaling that in sort of a gestalt fashion. There's something about this that it seems very out of step with what I take to be the main thoroughfare of, of permissible action or permissible, um, uh, permissible arrangements. And so I'm just, I just need to call it an outlier in some fashion. And, you know, this seems like as good a fashion as any other after Prince does it and after New York does it, uh, those two earlier cases about uh, uh, anti the anti-commandeering principle. Um, you know, whatever. Like, but I'm not fun. calling into question regulation of interstate traditional economic activities that in the aggregate have enough, you know, I'm not, I'm not calling into question Congress's ability to fight the next Great Depression. Right. And, and in that way, it's a less alarming way to say, because yeah. if, you, if you said, look, I, I think uh, if, as, as Thomas seems regularly to do, I think a <laughs> century or more of jurisprudence should be up for fresh debate, <laughs> right? Um, that could be a little alarming. So if you, if this, is a not, this is at least a less alarming way yeah. you know, because it, it, at the very same time that it says it's not okay, it says there's a bunch of other stuff that it is not like. And yeah. it's the yeah. stuff we've already blessed. You know, as you were talking, I wrote down two notes to myself, and I'm not sure I will be able to understand what they mean as I try to <laughs> them. Um, but one, you know, one other audience that um, we haven't talked about, but this anti-novelty might be directed at is, and I don't want to say cause lawyers because that sounds bad, but litigants who may be trying to advance certain agendas through litigation and signaling to them the sort of challenges that the court is more likely to be receptive to and what not. So litigants don't go asking us to like overturn Wickard, you know, either formally or effectively, but, you know, try to find some other limiting cases. But the second thought I had is, you know, as you were talking about, oh, well, Justice Thomas doesn't want to call, or Justice Thomas is open to calling into question, you know, centuries of jurisprudence. 
you know, I think that part of the problem with novelty is it's in its inadministrability in defining the relevant tradition makes it perhaps less of a limit on a justice's future self, and even as a limit on the doctrinal underpinnings of the last century of jurisprudence, because defining novelty, you know, allows the court to, you know, because all statutes are new, to say most things are unconstitutional, even Mm. though they might not be like materially different than what's come before. But also, you know, I think that the way the court is using novelty, you know, it's true that not overturning Wickard wouldn't limit Congress's ability to um, regulate interstate economic activity that, you know, might lead to the next Great Depression. But, you know, the reality is that the next Great Depression might not look like the last Great Depression. So whatever tools Congress might need to respond to that next Great Depression might not be that the tools Congress used in Wickard. And I think that part of the anti-novelty's flaw is its, you know, lack of grappling with the reasons why those cases that it maybe think went too far, why they did so. And to assume that the reasons why our traditions, doctrines, and practices have evolved will never apply or be sufficiently important in the future. I think that that is also part of my skepticism of the anti-novelty idea is that it is ignoring, you know, I don't know if we want to call it like a method or, or principle, like underlying the decisions it is trying to limit. So one example, one analogy that we could draw is like, imagine we got a family trying to have dinner and they're trying to select among a bunch of options, right? And a reason not to, uh, not to have something is because we've never had it before. And we want to have maybe what we're familiar with, right? And so, you know, someone vetoes something um, and has the others approve that veto precisely because, you know, we've never tried that before. We don't know how it's going to turn out. Mm-hmm. Now, now, you can see that kind of move, if you like, like leading to a bunch of different sorts of results. Uh, one, it can just be, a you know, the family may be totally adventurous, but like just pragmatically deploy that move just to achieve consensus sometimes, right? Like, you know, instead of having a big fight about whether we're going to have pizza or, or salad or something like that, right? You know, let someone use that move. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's precisely the, the manipulative, uh, the, the, the ability to, manip- to manipulate the framing, which can make that such an effective move, right? Because mm-hmm. you can always characterize it as novel and you can always, you know, right? So, um, but you can also imagine... Um, you know, so suppose that your ultimate goal is to have the family basically only eating Italian food and new kinds of Italian food, right? You selectively pull out that move to veto extensions in all kinds of other directions, right? And, and eventually what you're left with is through a kind of Darwinian process, right? Um, the, the, the only, because the old foods kind of fall away because they go out of favor or whatever. So, you know, you start getting new cookbooks and you, and you, and you vetoed all the, all the movements in other directions, but it's the Italian direction you're left with. And so eventually you're pretty much only eating Italian food. And so your preference for achieving a certain state has been achieved through the selective. So that's the, yeah. I, you know, the, the most like cynical view of how this is used, right? Is to achieve yeah. some 
political purpose, and and you know this is one of the arguments that you go over in the piece, right? So if if your ultimate goal is to tear apart the New Deal, right, right then then cutting away at extensions every time it comes up, and then framing every kind of modern use of of the kind of regulation of interstate activity as well we've never you know we've never regulated consumption of a product before we've never regulated uh you know growing um uh what had been a controlled substance in your own home before like these you know er- er- characterizing it as new every time is a way of eventually all the important regulations that you can imagine have been ruled out right right that's what so to me that was the most powerful aspect of the paper leo was that you by by depicting the way in which um, all of these things have been changing over time. And by all of these things, you know, the problems Congress needs to solve, the tools Congress uses to solve them, um, the way the executive can approach both of those two prior items, um, all of the change that has gone on um, and, and the, the sense in which the Constitution, first and foremost, creates, I know what I'm about to say is, is contested and contestable. Um, but creates a way to do day-to-day politics to solve social problems. Like, if fundamentally, <laughs> if that's what it's about, then of course there's been change from, from pretty much from the get-go um, because problems arise, because solutions are thought of for those problems, because new solutions are uh, tr- uh, attempted when the first round of solutions didn't quite work as well as we'd like. Um, and, and, and of course, we also are not required to solve the entirety of a problem, we can solve pieces of it, uh, mm-hmm. starting with one piece instead of another, um, for all sorts of practical reasons. So, so the, when, you, when you look at all of that change, and you look at all of those possibilities over time, uh, this anti-novelty principle, which can be deployed on virtually every occasion, mm-hmm. where something you don't like happens, because there will always be a sense in which it is new. Right. Mm -hmm. That 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 is fundamentally anti-democratic in the sense that it is a way to frustrate the operation of these day to day political mechanisms. The Constitution sets up and sets in motion. It's a way for the judiciary to obstruct um, the 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 operation of those mechanisms, which, of course, it should do on occasions when those mechanisms are doing terrible things that constitutional principles have tried to rule out of bounds. I'm not saying it's, I'm, you know, opposed to judicial review because I'm not, uh, but, but it is a, it is a, a tool that is so malleable um, that if people don't start getting a bit more clear headed about how, how, you know, it might be preposterous mm. at best, right? The, the chain of inferences might in the best case scenario be pretty lame and weak. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the and worse than that might be downright pernicious if people don't get become alert to that fact. Um, this tool is a is a really threatening. I, I want to argue with that, but I want to hear Leah argue or agree first, and then I'm gonna then I'm gonna it's hammer time. <laughs> oh, great. Um, I guess this is where we go into the black hole. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so um, I guess like what I would have said is as follows. Um, you know, I think that some of the justices who are signing on to this anti-novelty principle are not likely to invoke it in a way that will actually undo the New Deal. Um, I I think that at least now um, there is some sort of limit on the extent to which the court would use 
novelty as the mechanism to do that. But I share your concern, and I think that that is also the concern that drew me to this anti-novelty principle, that it is somehow fundamentally undemocratic in a way that doesn't appreciate how our constitutional system is supposed to change and deal with changed circumstances. Like the legislature, the federal legislature is the institution that is popularly elected, popularly accountable. You know, we can bracket questions about like how much that's the case now, but, you know, by design, it is supposed to be the institution that responds to popular will and makes these incremental changes over time. And that is a part of the design of our constitutional system. And it doesn't have an expiration date on it that the anti-novelty principle wants to impose on it. So that is, I think, sort of behind my, you know, underlying skepticism and disagreement with this anti-novelty principle. I don't think that the court as currently constituted will, you know, take a hacksaw to every subsequent federal statute that is enacted. But I I think it is really anti-democratic and fails to appreciate the court's role in the constitutional scheme of federalism and the separation of powers. You know, you mentioned that, you know, things have changed, they will change. You know, we can take the example of the status quo, like whatever you think of the Trump administration, I think it's fair to say that there are certain things about the administration that are different, right? (laughs) The president, (laughs) you know, like, I I think that that's a fair um, understatement. And so you can imagine a future Congress thinking, hey, like we learned something from however many years the Trump administration was in office. We want to pass some statutes that maybe limit the extent to which the president can have continued um, free form business ties that are susceptible to manipulation by foreign and domestic governments. Maybe we want to limit the extent to which, you know, press briefings aren't public. And, And so you can imagine Congress perceiving a need for something that hasn't happened before. And I don't think that that's antithetical to, you know, our system of separation of powers and federalism. That's just how it works. So one, one. Hey, before you put the hammer down, I just want to say one more point. Okay. Um, And I think you, so, because I want you to be able to smash this with the hammer too, if you want to. (laughs) Um, is the the thing that I'm most reminded of in the form of this anti-novelty argument, you, I don't think you mentioned it in the paper, but the, the, the thing that it most reminded me of is um, the stuff you used to see more in British cases and you even see in some American cases of an older vintage uh, in statutory cases where courts would say um, a statute in derogation of the common law is strictly construed. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not a constitutional principle, at least not on the surface. Uh, Although below the surface, I think it is a constitutional principle because it's an attack on legislative supremacy. It's a way for the judiciary to say, well, you know, legislature, you might think you're in charge uh, and you might pass a statute that you think is a good idea. But we're the last word on what's good, right and true when it comes to the law uh, and and how to solve a social problem uh, in the form of creating a new policy. Uh, So so when we when we are uh, comfortable with it, we'll do what you say when we're not, we won't. Um, and that's a very like that's really a very different view about how the different parts of the 
uh, of a tripartite government are interacting uh, one with the other. So, and, and this anti-novelty canon strikes me as a version of the same idea. It's a declaration of judicial supremacy and a not-too-subtle attack uh, on legislative supremacy. So, Christian, just smash. Well, I, I, w- <laughs> I was going to say that first, the mention of the Trump administration existing for years is well, now I have to mark this episode as explicit, put a parental advisory on it. Uh, <laughs> uh, Which has never happened before in the history yeah, of oral is, argument. Yeah, right. I mean, because, you know, it's, it's... That means I can start dropping F-bombs, right? Please. <laughs> and, and you will not be alone. I've been... I'm, I'm not allowed to cuss on this program. That prohibition has ended. <laughs> uh, so secondly, I, I wonder if... The and and the way that Joe was talking earlier is what made me think about this. Mm. That, that if the the kind of critique that you're making of anti of anti novelty arguments, you know, again, just the argument that Congress has never done this kind of thing before. Therefore, and, and, yeah, but there's always something more than the therefore, right? So I'm wondering, like, what distinguishes this attack from just a general attack on common law lawmaking, right, or com- even common law constitutionalism? I'm reminded of Llewellyn's um, strict and loose constructionism, uh, strict and loose interpretation idea, right? That there's mm-hmm. that there's this kind of interpretation that some judges make, which is like reading precedent for all it's worth, and then yeah, and then as he says, like other, and he implies and actually says, I think smarter judges you know, a subset of them will use the surgeon's knife and will kind of figure out how cases are different and the rule will kind of evolve through a process of expansion and sculpting. And, you know, that's kind of the process of, of common law lawmaking. So so in a way, like, you know, the, the, the thing that the, if you believe in common law constitutionalism, and a lot of people don't, but, um, but one way of seeing what's happening is just that the court is observing that this is a different instance. This case is different from another and it's different in a way that matters, right? So if the argument is observing novelty on its own is not enough to justify different treatment, I don't mm-hmm. think that you'd find any justice who says novelty alone is enough, right? Um, yeah. And and so it's always novelty with something else, right? It's it's novelty and 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 the argument will usually be in a way that matters, right? Mm-hmm. So in other words, this this statute goes quite far toward the kind of the the blurred edge of of breaching the separation of powers. Mm-hmm. Or this statute goes quite far in abrogating some right of the people, or something like that, right? And, mm-hmm. and it's just, and you know, Justice Scalia argues in in one case, and you you deal with this. I think this is to me was the most compelling before I read your argument, right? That that here's an instance where Congress has never done this before, and if they'd been free to do it, they surely would have done it, yeah. right? Because this is a very easy way of achi- of achieving uh, certain objectives, and that, I think that was a case of like commandeering. Yeah. Um, um, uh, state officials, right? Because so much easier to just order state officials to carry out federal policy. That was the to, Prince case, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. I think yeah. it was Prince. Yeah, yes. uh, I always get Prince in New York confused when you know. Uh, um, so, is an attack like anti-novelty is just another way of saying distinguishing cases, right? Mm-hmm. And and surely you're not suggesting that we should never distinguish cases. Uh, I guess you're saying like anti-novelty alone is not enough, but then does anybody really argue that anti-novelty alone is enough? And then we get back to, to the extent that there's not a lot more argument that can be explained by the thing we started talking about, right? Which is that they're not, this is under theorized, you know, pragmatic um, argument just to establish a rule which they can live with. So Leah, if, if Scalia is right in, in the Prince case, on those predicates that he articulates more clearly, the underlying predicates, right? Um, that this would be a very attractive thing for, con- it, it, this would have been very attractive as a solution for Congress mm-hmm. for a long time, 
for a really big and obvious problem that has also existed for a long time, and yet they have never picked up this tool and used it before, therefore they must have thought it was improper to do so. So we're also going to infer that it's improper, right? It seems like we're paying attention to the judgment of another constitutionally co-equal yep. branch. So in a way, it sounds kind of friendly to the legislature. So, mm-hmm. so what's the critique? If, that, if it really were laid out that clearly, right, mm-hmm. um, wh- what, if anything, do you think that argument would be getting wrong? My sense from your paper is what it gets wrong is all of the change that's always happening. Yeah, so that that was what I was going to immediately go to is that it might be that like Congress, you know, at times one through 10 years ago, thought that something was unconstitutional, and therefore didn't enact it. But the reasons they may have thought something was unconstitutional may turn on their expectations about how the underlying system works. And those expectations are informed by you know, how things actually work on the ground and like the sort of facts that are susceptible to change. So there might be a predicate fact that has changed in the interim that is relevant to Congress's assessment of whether a law is constitutional. You know, the easy example that I think I give in the paper is the extent to which state and local governments are a large percentage of employers in the workforce, you know, at a time when Congress looked around at the world and said, we can regulate the national workforce without having to regulate state and local governments as employers, then its assessment that it didn't have the constitutional powers to do so might be different than when a future Congress looks around at the world and says, wow, state and local governments represent, say, over 15% of the national workforce. Therefore, our ability to regulate the national economy requires us to be able to regulate state and local governments as employers. So there are all sorts of predicate facts or even changed assessments of certain constitutional politics or constitutional values that can change in the interim in a way that might matter to whether a given law is constitutional, such that we wouldn't sh- we shouldn't privilege prior Congress's determinations, even if it was a bunch of prior Congresses. So, you know, that's one of the you know, reasons why I think that even if Justice Scalia was right about all of the predicates and prints, which I don't think he was, that argument perhaps should not have um, prevailed. You know, I mentioned predicate facts, also predicate values. You know, Justice Scalia's view was that requiring states to enforce federal law would be harmful to federalism and diminish the states. But there's a decent argument that requiring them to enforce federal law would also enhance their powers by giving them powers in areas which perhaps states don't have right now. So that is, you know, another changed um, value that perhaps should be taken into account. Um, You know, before we got into this, there were questions about common law constitutionalism. I don't know if we want to go back to that. And no, Joe uh, Joe hijacked that. Joe Joe wants to skip over that. I think. Oh, okay. (laughs) Is that (laughs) right? That's not true. That's not true. No, no. Yeah, please. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. So the common law constitutionalism angle. is interesting. I'm not sure. I don't think I would um, identify as a common law constitutionalist. But as far as, you know, what difference between anti-novelty and common law constitutionalism, I guess I had three thoughts. One, um, the extent to which 
common law constitutionalism isn't unidirectional in the same way that anti-novelty is, I think might make common law constitutionalism both different and more attractive than anti-novelty, because if anti-novelty is a unidirectional in the sense that it will always, novelty will always, or differences will always operate to the detriment of Congress, as opposed to the legality of something Congress has done, you know, that distinguishes common law constitutionalism, which could say, oh, let's look back at this prior precedent, look at its reasoning and say, oh, you know, that difference um, doesn't matter. That might be one way. You know, the second is that I guess I have a sort of broader set of um, considerations that I think should be guiding courts analysis rather than just identifying, you know, one case as being different than the last, which is part of my concern about the anti-novelty principle is that it ignores the, you know, if you want to call it the unwritten constitution or Congress's constitution or the scope of congressional practice that has developed around certain cases. So in the example of Humphrey's executor, you know, you can say, sure, like you can identify a difference between case number two and Humphrey's executor. But how about identifying a difference that distinguishes case number two, not only from Humphrey's executor, but all of the many different statutes that have built up around Humphrey's executor over time? Um, And that, I think, is not necessarily something that anti-novelty does super well. And finally, you know, if the question is, can courts say, oh, well, this case is different than that case and that difference matters, you know, I don't. I I don't have a problem with that at all. That is, as you say, how law works. But I think that the way the anti-novelty principle has developed and the scope of the anti-novelty principle is pretty suggestive of the fact that it doesn't do a good job of identifying differences that do matter or that should matter. Um, Whether the example is Prince or New York trying to distinguish commandeering from cooperative federalism programs or conditional preemption. I think that that's an example where the difference the court identified doesn't really make sense from a theoretical or normative perspective. Um, Or if the difference is the PHH CFPB case um, that I mentioned earlier, anti-novelty is just not great at sussing out um, the differences that matter and justices aren't great and judges aren't great at applying the principle in a way that identify differences that that matter. So it might be that there is some hyper perfected version of the anti-novelty principle that could but at least the principle that we have and the way it's been implied suggests maybe that isn't the case. Well, what, what if it's more like, um, so I'm, I'm thinking of kind of common law constitutionalism more in the model of like med, med mal, medical malpractice, uh-huh. right? Where, where the content of the restrictions, the content of kind of where you'll step in and interfere with a particular um, medical practitioner's judgment is is formed by that community itself. It's a highly deferential branch of tort law, it seems to me, right? As are many areas of In terms of the languages. standard of care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It could, because it's, it's the practice of the community that's, I, that defines the standard of care. I think this is, um, th- there are two things at right angles to each other. And I think, um, like Lobachevsky, you keep trying to bend them to make contact. Um, and, I th- <laughs> and I don't think it's ultimately helpful. Um, uh, it, so, the common law methodology or not for the court doing its work when it's trying to decide, um, you know, how to construe a statute or whether something's constitutional or not 
is sort of internal to the court itself. What it could be one way to think about it. Um, and and separate and apart from that is where does the court th- who do the who does the court think its dialogic partners are mm-hmm. in articulating the norms and where the boundaries are for those constitutional principles. And the, and I think the Leah's project and the thing she's debunking this anti-novelty notion is a story about the second of those two things. It's yeah. a story about the dialogue between the court and Congress and how the court is saying it thinks that dialogue should operate. And that could be true whether or not you take a sort of a common law constitutionalism perspective on how the court should be think, or instead a hypertextualist perspective or instead a hyper originalist, pers- whatever, right? You're, you're, Constitutional interpretive methodology could be any one of a number of things, and you could all, all of those different people could say, and I either agree or disagree with the way we should be having conversation with the Congress over time about where these constitutional lines are drawn. Well, I, uh, but I took the well, I'm t- I'm taking the at least the discussion we're having now to be ultimately about the gravity uh, with which one treats an argument that Congress has done something novel. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so what what is the import of that fact? And of course, one response is it's always possible to characterize what they've done as novel. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that's the one that I say runs headlong into the fact that it's always possible to distinguish cases. And yet we don't we don't dare, you know, we don't derogate the process of distinguishing in order to arrive at the law. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, which is why, again, that's why I suggest, though, that that maybe MedMal provides some signposts here. Right, because so what are those signposts? Because the, yeah. the the court there is in dialogue with the medical community, right? It's like they're hearing from expert witnesses, and they're also laying down standards. Because of course, the medical community doesn't control what courts do ultimately, but it's using those inputs. So I think in in that case, right, the fact that a certain procedure has never been performed before, right, is an indication that there's going to be a you know there, there's something to decide here. We're going to have to take we're, we're going to hear the evidence differently. Right, uh, informing whether this was whether a procedure that has never been done before um, is consistent with the standard of care. Now, one argument is, well, no procedure has ever been done before because it's a different patient. You know, it's always they're always slightly different. No one with this exact blood pressure has ever gotten this kind of procedure before. Like all two <laughs> procedures are are different, right? Right. But but we we you know through our mental modeling to come back to it, like we put them into categories. Say, well, no, we've we've you know uh, put heart stents. You know, that's a whole category of things, and at least in a range of patients, that's been done before. And you, within this range, totally within the standard of care to perform this kind of procedure for this kind of patient, you know, where, where we've kind of subtly categorized this procedure and this set of patients, right? But there will be those cases, right? And, and the argument could be had with maybe any particular case, that, well, no, no, no one's ever done this kind of procedure before. And that argument will sometimes have more salience and more kind of uh, more power if it really is different than the norm, right? And it's it, it's not that that ultimately controls the outcome of the case, because the fact that the procedure mm-hmm. is different doesn't necessarily mean that it was illegal in the tort sense, right? Mm-hmm. It it just means that we're going to hear the other evidence a little bit differently. Was it was it different in a way that matters given the given the reasons that we've adopted the standard of care as the standard mm-hmm. for liability? So so here's what's what's to me what's most interesting is. Um, in that, which was very helpful, I now understand better what you were trying to get to, um, is f- to me the most important thing here is, there, is that the fact that the what really matters aspect of that doesn't come from novelty or not, right? It comes from the goals of tort law itself, which aren't about whether this procedure is new. 
in and of itself, it, it's, right? Because it, it, it might yeah, be new, that, it might not be new. In that context, novelty marks out a, a kind of zone of different dialogue. You know, the the the, the way we're going to hear evidence is going to be different in a in mm-hmm. a no, in a novel case than in a non. Maybe it's more case. searching inquiry, or it's more you know. Uh, but but the fact we're going to be looking at like research rather than right. you know that sort and of and the way that you have the inquiry m- might be different but the but in in a sense it's the same inquiry you would have conducted in any case whether the procedure was new or not yeah and there and 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 the answer can be liability or no liability whether the procedure is new or not and so there's a sense in which it's just not relevant right Oh, because ultimately you could reach either outcome and ultimately the inquiry you're having is of the sort that you always have to one degree or another. But it, it's like an alert that says, hey, this might be more interesting or you might want to slow, slow your roll a little bit here uh, because this is noticeably different in a more readily recognizable way. Um, but the standards are not coming from novelty and this anti-novelty canon makes it seem like the novelty itself is a principle uh, and hmm. and my, my Leo, Leo, what persuaded by I mean, Leah's paper that yeah, it isn't yeah, a valid I, principle yeah because I, I ultimately agree with leah so I, i'm just trying to you know yeah I, stuff yeah, out like where it is so yeah. you know i think that what i would have said is and joe probably put this like a thousand times better than i would have is that in the medmal example it doesn't Doubtful, sound like I have to say. novelty is acting either as something that shifts a presumption about whether something is malpractice or not or even as a factor that weighs toward a determination in one direction or another it just changes you know, the pertinent body of evidence to which the court can look. And so in the anti-novelty example, you know, I think that one, how the court is treating novelty differs in those respects because it is either a threshold determination that shifts, you know, the presumption toward unconstitutionality or a factor that weighs in favor of a determination of unconstitutionality and is therefore different. Or like if you want to say it's similar, it is something that adjusts the relevant body of evidence toward, you know, I I think that the people using novelty, the second best limiting principle would say toward, you know, only evidence that says whether the statute is consistent with the original meaning of the constitution. And I think that either form of the anti-novelty principle doesn't make a ton of sense of why you would allow novelty to factor into the determination, whether it's a threshold or a factor, or adjust the relevant body of evidence to be only the original meaning of the Constitution, in part because, you know, and it might just be that a lot of this boils down to that I don't think the court is identifying or courts in general or scholars who rely on this are identifying differences that matter. And so they are sort of making a cheat move where they don't have to explain um, differences with like prior cases or prior statutes in ways that like really make sense of um, uh, the analysis. So, so like I like the MedMal example, um, and maybe I just don't understand how MedMal works. Um, <laughs> well, but, I mean, 
Um, I shouldn't say that we do either. I mean, we don't. (laughs) But I I guess like I, you know, the way it was described, it still sounds like even when there is a new procedure, the court doesn't really adjust the level of deference it gives to medical practitioners, either their research, which suggests it might, you know, the new procedure is valid or the testimony of experts who say like, oh, like this person explained it and like that sounds legitimate. And that is, I think, different in the anti-novelty principle. And I don't think that's a difference that suggests anti-novelty is legitimate because I, I guess like I don't think that the court is any better position than Congress to, you know, decide the constitutionality of a new statute than an old one or like whether there are any like facts that have changed over time that um, merit the enactment of a statute that differences that, you know, looks different in ways that matter. Not only is it not better positioned, you might even say it's worse positioned, right? I mean, your, your, your theory about the, the day-to-day politics and dealing with social problems, mechanisms that the Constitution establishes might be, and I don't think you'd need to go as as far along this continuum as James Bradley Thayer, to be sure. <laughs> but but your your theory might be um, that you know, uh, court, um, you 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 ought to hold, you ought to steady your hand and and be quite resistant to the conclusion that the ordinary operation of social policy and problem solving uh, by the popularly elected branches is is sort of somehow deeply defective uh, unless you can come up with an awfully persuasive account of that uh, using the constitutional text, right? I, I'm, that actually does not describe my view, but but, <laughs> but you, you could see someone saying that and, and someone who said that would think this anti-novelty thing is really a bunch of bunk, right. wouldn't they? Yes, definitely. Someone who is more um, toward their, the theory and end of the spectrum or more generally skeptical of judicial review is anti-democratic should really not like the anti-novelty principle. I'm not sure <laughs> if that describes any of the people that are applying or invoking it. Certainly doesn't describe Randy Barnett. Right. I, I, I don't think um, I am, uh, I, I might be further along the spectrum toward Theorianism than you, although certainly not all the way there, um, but at least in the category of cases addressing the constitutionality of federal statutes, um, I am a little bit more skeptical of how active judicial review should be, even when I like the outcomes. Have we done enough justice to this paper? It's a great paper, and I want to make sure that we've hit enough of it um, so that I, I, that we've given a sense of it. And and I'll say one other thing I love about this conversation is it maybe kicks off a new kind of thing in oral argument Ooh. where we kind of mangle, in the course of talking about one area of law, we mangle another, which requires <laughs> us to have another conversation in the future to unmangle that other. And then there's yes. another mangling. Squad goals. Right. So, like, so, 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 so the med, the med, the med mal episode is, is upcoming, clearly, right? right. Well, yeah. also the episode about constitutional rights and anti-novelty. Yeah. There, oh, there you go. got a few spinoffs. Yeah. This yeah, is awesome. Spin-offs. Maybe a whole other podcast series. It's actually, yeah, it's our parallel podcast called Clean Up. <laughs> and it's where we got to come in and clean up all the messes we made. Or maybe like rebuttal. That, well, Ooh. I was going to say if John Syracuse coined follow-up, right? And he was the one who started follow-up. Right. Like we will be the first to have an entire podcast Clean up. episode, you know, series de- devoted to correcting our mistakes. I like it. Yeah. Well, should we can can we shift to a little bit of 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 uh, either the the past term or the future term? If we've got, I we, don't, we're taking a lot of your time. 
Um, and you, Christian, you've got a, a time constraint. I'm don't on you? a little bit of a short fuse today. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we'll need to maybe we'll need to do Aaliyah since we didn't get to talk about court fun. Uh, maybe we'll we can uh, reconvene when the term is about to when the next term is about to start. That sounds great. Um, I'm always around except for a brief two week period when I'll be in Ireland. Because <laughs> we you know we didn't do any criminal law stuff. We didn't do any habeas. There's stuff. so much that we uh, there were so many regrets that you're having, Joe. You're, I'm just saying, so this is, I'm just previewing, I'm just previewing. It's well, not regret, it's about the future. Lee, I, I, look, I, I, I don't presume that anybody is a listener to our program. Um, no, but, but I am. Our, our, um, <laughs> I've listened to the Joe Fishman episode, the Mila episode, oh, the those are some crossover good ones. episode. See? Oh, those are some good ones. Those are some, but our tradition, you know, we are, our, our tradition has been at the end of each term, we do a we do an annual Supreme Court roundup. It's a comprehensive we, roundup a comprehensive that focuses round, on a single case. On a, we always, <laughs> <laughs> right. Our roundup always consists of talking about one case. That is our that is our tradition here on on oral argument. So we're going I don't know. We'll do that next week. You and I'll do that next week. Will we do that next yeah, week? Yeah, cuz we've got a, we've got a mailbag and so we'll do so we'll also do some some uh, post-term um uh, kvetching. Okay. Um, at least I will. Uh and uh and but what but case we, are you going to do? Oh, we don't know. So oh, there's okay. still time to get to get in the mailbag and suggest a case. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Uh, but but Leah, you if you if you would be willing to, I would love it if you would join us in September and and help us preview the term a little bit. Of course, I'd be thrilled. This was super, super fun. Um, and I so enjoyed talking to you all. Um, it was really, really, truly a lot of fun. 